Okay, hey, what's up, everybody? This upload is coming to you July 26, 2017. My name is Dallas Post, and you're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast. We believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so our purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought on topics within personal finance, economics, and investing. Don't forget you can find us at postmoneyplan.com or search The Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. So today we're going to be talking about the banking system and breaking down the history of money lending and a little bit about how the banks have developed in the U.S. and the West uh, over time. So I have on the show Murray Williams with me. What we're going to go over is a history of money lending, roots of the modern banking system. We'll go into a little bit about fractional reserve banking and the pros and cons of fractional reserve banking. And then we'll move into how the fractional reserve banking affects our economic cycles and then start to wrap things up with talking about the causes of the Great Depression and then how fractional reserve banking and stock market cycles interplay and how they uh, work today. Very important. Yes. All right. So, Murray, you've been on the show several times, but just Mm -hmm. refresh our audience in terms of your background and uh, your experience. Yes, I'm a, I'm a former bond broker and stockbroker as well, and I've written articles on Seeking Alpha and other publications. Why don't you just go ahead and kick us off in the beginning, give us a little bit of history on money lending. Yeah, money lending has been around from ancient times. Probably the earliest record is from ancient Babylonian times, and lenders have been charging interest on loans back during those times. But what's different back then is that the money lenders were private and they didn't really do unsecured loans. They did more secured loans. That was a primary income source for people with excess capital. One of the criticisms back then is that the money lenders would basically just pile up wealth. And if you ever read the, the book, The Richest Man in Babylon, one of the premises of that, and, and that's if you could make your money, make money. And that's a very profitable business model. So money lending has been around for, for that long. There's kind of the maxim that people complain about. You need money to make money and people that don't have it seems to struggle to get out of that pit. But that's kind of where money lending comes in. If you have money, then you have it to lend out to then you can get interest on it. So where did the concept of, of interest on, on money lend come from or, or how did that develop? I mean, mathematics have been around for, for a long time. And I don't know who invented the concept of charging interest on, on loans, but loans have been around, especially bonds, since Roman times, even before then, whereas the government would issue bonds. And then the problem was, was that they couldn't service those bonds and then they would devalue the currency in order to make it more serviceable. So that's one of the criticisms of, of governments loaning bonds out. So just talking about some of the reasons for borrowing or lending, depending on which side you're talking about, the way I think of it is someone would borrow money because their current needs are greater than their current resources. And they say, okay, I want to borrow so that I can pay today for something that I don't have enough money for. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of under the assumption that your current resources are less than your future resources after borrowing. For example, you'll borrow so that you can pay for a college education on the assumption that that'll help you earn more income later so that you can then pay it back and have more left over. Because otherwise you wouldn't borrow in the first place because if you're just going to end up negative. So that's the assumption. But whether that's actually the case is another thing. 
And, and there's different types of lending is what you suggest is probably student loans where you borrow money to, to get some education for a skill. But probably, and that's, that's kind of one of the, the lending practices that makes sense for the borrower. What I say is a, a lending practice that does not make sense for a borrower is consumer lending, like, like spending money on a credit card. You know, it's like, I can't afford to pay for something now. And so I can some kind of a consumer item. And so I'll just borrow money to pay for it. Even though I don't really have a future income, but that's probably a very foolish way to, to borrow money. But borrowing money to learn a, a valuable skill, like in a student loan or borrowing from, from a business perspective for working capital, that, that makes more sense. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of a side, but I, I love touching on that because I hate when people get stuck in consumer debt. So it's worth making that point while we're here is the difference between investment related debt and consumption related debt. Right. And which you just touched on borrowing money for school or a house, you could consider those investment related debts, but borrowing money for a car or to buy clothes, those aren't things that you're spending money on that you're going to get more money back in the future by any likelihood versus a home. You're hoping that it'll appreciate in price mm -hmm. your student loan that you hope you'll have more income after school. You so hope you'll have more income. Hope, hope. But anyway, <laughs> so ostensibly it's an investment related debt. Let's move back on to the, the history of money lending. So I would say borrowing enables something to happen that otherwise wouldn't or couldn't happen. For example, if college costs $30,000 a year and I'm an 18-year-old, I don't have that kind of money. I can't go to college if I don't borrow. Right. So then it, it then makes something possible that otherwise wouldn't be possible. Right. Therefore, I would say lending is potentially value-creating and profitable, potentially, in investment-related situations. Mm -hmm. But then I would differentiate between two types of borrowing where I just call one like situational need. You know, let's say your hut gets destroyed in a hurricane, but you still need food and shelter afterwards. So you might like go and borrow from someone that has enough and uh, you had that situational need. But then another type of borrowing would be a profiteering enterprise where you want to build a power plant, but you're not going to have a mon enough money to do that because it's a huge enterprise. So then you, you borrow enough money from people who have it or a bunch of people and eventually you're able to build that and then you can create value afterwards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would probably say that the uh, history of the modern banking system is basically you can trace that back to the Italian city-states. And it was during the time of the Renaissance, probably started around the year 1200. And primarily it was the, it was the, the cities of Venice, Genoa, and Florence. And this is when you had corporate entities actually start to lend money on, on a widespread scale. These institutions would lend money to governments, to businesses, and private enterprises as well. And coincidentally, this is also the, the time when the double-entry accounting bookkeeping system was invented as well. It was through the, uh, the, the Italian bankers. And if you think about it just throughout history, in practices like, like farmers would mm -hmm. want to borrow in order so that you can have enough money to, to buy like land or seeds so, mm -hmm. so that you can grow crops. You borrow ahead of time so that you can then plant it, you're investing for the future, and then eventually you have the, the crops which grow, you have your yield, 
And then you can sell that back and then and settle your debts, hopefully have some profit left over afterwards. Right. So that naturally necessitated or gave birth to a desire for lending or a borrowing and then lending. Right. And the potential downside, of course, when you borrow money is that you're not able to pay it back. It's whether it's student loans or business loans or farming. If your your income or your business profits of your crop yield didn't match the money you borrowed, then then the then you would take a loss, and and then the lender would take a loss as well. And yeah. this has always been one of the primary considerations of the risks of lending. Well, that's why I think it's all. I think lending should only exist in situations where there is collateral to be held. The difference being, you if you you could potentially lend money with nothing to secure the loan. Mm-hmm. And that would be an unsecured loan. But a secured loan would be there's some kind of collateral, some kind of other asset that the lender can either hold or at least have legal claim to if the borrower defaults on the loan. And that way, there, there's some guarantee to the loan and some mm-hmm. security that the value just won't poof into the air. Because otherwise, you know, if you say like, oh, okay, I'll just borrow billions of dollars as an individual and I'll go spend it, but then like have no way of paying it back, that's a huge risk to the lender. So a way of protecting lenders and keeping the whole economy going is by making sure that all, all loans are secured. And that, that was one of the big dangers uh, of derivatives, credit default swaps, where they just went crazy in 2008. You could end up creating markets where things are 100-fold insured, like where the money doesn't really exist to pay all those settlements for those debts because there isn't that actual collateral there to secure them. That's a good point. And, and I remember a couple of years ago, just a personal story, I'd lend money to people I knew and I never did pay back. And then I said, well, I'm just going to get some uh, some surety. You know, I'm going to get some some collateral next time. And I, I, l- I lent some money to somebody. I said, and, well, you're going to have to give me some collateral for the loan. And he actually lent me uh, an electronic device. It was actually probably worth twice as much as the money he borrowed. And he paid me back in short order. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was quite amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another point I'll just make while we're here is that I think it's very important to always try to align incentives as much as possible. Right. And so when there's So when there's collateral to a loan... It starts to align the incentives of the lender and the borrower that they both want the same outcome. Exactly right. All right, move, move us into the roots of the modern banking system. Just some points that I have there on the roots of the modern banking system. In order for someone to lend or want to lend, they have to have excess cash. So you have people that either have a deficiency of cash versus what they want or need, and then you have other people who have a surplus. What people have found throughout history is that people who have need will pay for it and people who have extra can make interest or profit from Mm -hmm. that. So the de facto lender is going to be people with the most cash in society. If you think about like who has the most cash is people who have quote unquote protected money, which is essentially the banks now before banks like the predecessors to banks, even though it wasn't their money, they're holding for other people. But then they're sitting on a bunch of money. In times past, gold was the main form of money. And I'm sure a lot of people have heard of the history of how goldsmiths would, you know, gold is heavy. It attracts thieves if you're like holding it under your mattress or at home or whatever. So that created the demand for money storage and protection. Mm-hmm. And so someone protecting everyone's money ends up having a lot of cash, even if it doesn't necessarily belong to them directly. 
So then you basically had goldsmiths who were the gold dealers and they would hold on to people's gold for a fee and then they would end up having all the gold in their reserves. And uh, just while we're here, I'll make the point that money storage is not the same as money lending. They're Mm -hmm. separate services. So you could have a demand for lending, which is kind of going back to what I had said about like you have situational needs and then profiteering enterprise. But then you can also have the demand for storage because it's risky carrying all your gold around and kind of inconvenient. Right. You can have a deposit bank or a loan bank and they're two different separate separate businesses, but they've been combined in recent years too. Exactly. So that's the point. I'm differentiating. There's two separate services, but goldsmiths found that when they were sitting on all this money that belonged to their clients, they had these deposits of gold with them, and then they write out IOUs to their customers. They found that, okay, not all of their customers are coming to them for all of their gold at the same time. So most of the time they're sitting on maybe like 90% of the deposits and then only like there's maybe a 10% churn or whatever, you know, it would vary from person to person or wherever, you know, at times. But basically in practice, they found that like not everyone is coming for their gold all at the same time, which meant that they're sitting on gold that's just being idle. So what they found out that they could do was they could actually start lending from that gold out to people who wanted to borrow. The reason it could work is because the people that borrowed would pay interest on that and eventually they gain profit from that. And then they could return the, the deposit that was borrowed to make the loan and no one was hurt and they made a profit in the meantime. So then that kind of attracted them to just do it more and more and lend out more and more of the gold that's sitting in their reserves until eventually you could get down to where you have no money in reserves and Mm -hmm. then someone comes to go get their gold out and claim it back and they don't have it there. And that's the ancient form of a run on a bank and a bank being quote unquote bankrupt where like they don't have the money to pay out the deposits that people want. And that used to happen all the time because that's what they did. They would lend it out and there were no restrictions necessarily. And if people got scared that they didn't have enough gold in reserve, then people would run and try to get their gold before others did so that they got theirs back. Kind of similar to a Ponzi scheme in the sense like if you're the first people to get paid, then you're fine. But then the people who are the last ones, they don't, there isn't any money there and then they get stuck. So that's how I would say where the fractional reserve banking concept came in. So why don't you walk us through that? Yeah, I mean, you just described it perfectly. And I would say that the concept of fractional reserve banking it probably started in England during the Middle Ages with the goldsmiths back then. The problem is, was that like, for instance, if say you had a million dollars in gold deposits, you can actually safely lend out one million dollars in loans. So if somebody came to the bank for to, to ask for their money back and you, you'd be able to, to grant it to them. The problem is, is that they would actually lend promissory notes that would, that would extend loans beyond what they had in their vaults. Like if you had a million dollars in gold, they lend out $10 million. And this is when, this is where the economic system changed, where actually debt or promissory notes for gold actually became money. I think there's a great illustration of this. If anyone has seen the movie Dumb and Dumber, so... <laughs> When the main characters, they find a briefcase full of money and then they're trying to return it to the rightful owner. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, they accidentally open it and find out there's like a million dollars in there. Right. And they think like, oh, well, we need some money to get by. They end up spending it all. 
and then they put in these paper IOUs in the briefcase, and then the bad guys find them and want the money back, and they open it up and find out there's only IOUs. And he's like, what is this? There's nothing in here. They're like, oh, no, no, it's all good. It's just they're IOUs. They're, they're as good as money. And that really is literally our money system and how the fiat money system started. And with the goldsmiths, which you're talking about, the goldsmiths would take the gold deposit and then give the customer an IOU. And then the customer would have that IOU, the promissory note, and they could come back to the goldsmith and get their gold back as long as the gold was there. But it wasn't always there. And that's where the problem comes in. If, if something happened where the goldsmith... The general public who deposited money with the goldsmith that they felt like the goldsmith was doing something fraudulent, like lending out money they didn't have, then they would lose confidence in the goldsmith and all ask for their money all at the same time. And that's where you have a run on the bank. Fractional reserve banking has been going on. It's been happening in the United States since its founding. As I said before, it started probably started back in England during the Middle Ages during that time. Let me jump in here and just clarify what we mean by fractional reserve banking, just for clarity's sake. Fractional reserve banking is a, a practice of keeping only a fraction of the money that the bank has in deposits in reserve, and the rest gets used elsewhere. So, for example, if I put $100 in Bank of America and Murray, you put $100 in Bank of America, they now have $200 in deposits. If they keep only 10% in reserve and then lend out the rest, then they keep $20 in deposits and then they lend out 180 out to other customers and hope to make a profit on it. There's only $20 actually sitting there in their vault. That would be a 10% reserve ratio where they have used fractional reserve banking. What I've discovered is it even goes even beyond that. I mean, like, like legally... It's a 10% reserve requirement, but banks can actually issue promissory notes even in beyond that, and they can keep these loans off the books. And this is where it gets where it gets really airy, where it gets kind of dangerous for banks when they get over leveraged. And you see, the problem is, is that a bank has to keep a certain amount of money as far as either cash or gold inside the bank in their vault. So if depositors want cash, they can get cash. Exactly. And that's yeah. what determines how risky things are in the bank and then throughout the economy, because the banks are the crux of the economy. If you had 100% of your deposits in reserve, the bank would be essentially riskless. There would be no loans out. They would, they would just be holding on to the cash. So there's no risk of not having the money. It's just sitting there. But then at the further you stretch it, you could go down to 75% in reserve, 50% in reserve. 25% reserve or only 10% in reserve. In the U.S. today, and has been for decades, the legal requirement for banking purposes is 10% reserve requirement. On-demand deposits, right? Which is pretty incredible to think that it's that loose. It really is, and it just goes to show like how fragile the banking system has been in times past. And going through the history of banking in the United States, that was the banking panic of 1907, where a lot of banks were just going belly up. And it was that bank panic that was the catalyst for creating the Federal Reserve System. But the entire banking system and our money supply in general is just based on confidence, basically. And if other lenders lose confidence in a bank, like, for instance, if there was a run on the bank and depositors wanted their money back, if they all asked for cash, they'd be, they'd be in trouble. If a bank 
can't get any liquidity to borrow, like for instance, in the federal funds market, which is which is the overnight liquidity market where banks loan money to each other. If a bank that is considered insolvent, if they just lose confidence with the other banks, then the bank is in trouble. I don't want to get too much into the Federal Reserve, but one of the uh, reasons for the creation of the Federal Reserve was to back up the banking system. And the purposes of it, well, if you had the Federal Reserve, then there won't be any bank failures. Well, we, we learned how that turned out. <laughs> and so just because we have a central bank doesn't, doesn't stop us from having bank failures. So banks have to engage in safe lending practices, which a lot of them haven't. All right. I, th- I think we still actually have a good amount of content to cover in terms of the fractional reserve banking. We could go into the Fed a little bit too. So I'm going to go ahead and cut this one off for part one, and then we'll come back next week for part two, continuing to dis- discuss money lending and the fractional reserve banking system and going into a little bit about the Fed. Thanks, Murray, for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on the iTunes podcast app. And we'll catch you next time on another edition of the Post Money Plan Podcast. 